everyone, back again. Today we're going to finish off Dissemination with the last two chapters titled The Double Session and the final chapter titled Dissemination. But before jumping into that, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guignow. If you're new here, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you. So if you're new, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. Who knows? They might get a kick out of it. If you want to help me out, you can do all of those things or you can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal. If you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find it on YouTube where I sometimes release videos if you're into that at all. Or if you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form where I used to say you shouldn't find any ads. And for the time being, you still won't. But I'm going to start to try to integrate some in order to earn a little bit more income. And uh, yeah, let's jump into the double session here. So I think it's important to establish that in the final two chapters of this text, Derrida draws heavily from literary works to, uh, in a sense, practice what he had developed in the previous two chapters, that preface and Plato's pharmacy, while still adding more to it. It's not just a pure application of his thought. But for that reason, it is a little bit difficult for me to accurately present all of what Derrida is getting on about here, because it would require me to present all of these other literary texts and to contextualize them and everything. So for that reason, I'm going to be a little bit um, strict in how I approach this, choosing only select texts that Derrida uses, contextualizing them, explaining them, and then talking about Derrida's opinions about them or how he applies his theory of deconstruction, how he applies this thing called dissemination to these texts. And the two that he starts out with that comprise a uh, one page, I guess, at the beginning of the chapter is an excerpt from one Socratic dialogue and an excerpt from uh, Malarmé's Mimic, or I don't know how you, Malarmé, maybe that's how uh, English-speaking people pronounce it. I've, I've never actually heard his name pronounced in English, uh, but Malarmé's Mimic. Now, these two texts sort of operate at the as the crux to this entire chapter. Now, the Socratic dialogue makes sense because this is a Socratic dialogue between Socrates and Protarchus, uh, Protarchus, sorry, uh, where Socrates makes the case that he, the conjunction of memory and sensation acts as a kind of like painter or writer on the soul. So the point here, very much from Plato's pharmacy, is that Socrates did not bemoan writing wholesale, he criticized and challenged a certain kind of writing, a certain kind of writing that did not lend itself to truth, whereas writing did have the potential to open up truth if it was done properly. And that is because to recall any events, to recall any stories, any truths that we might have, requires that we conjure up a mental image within our brain, which is kind of an act of bringing up a text that we can read and that imparts itself onto our minds. So if a true idea is presented through this medium, like through writing, it is nevertheless true. Whereas if a false idea is presented through writing, it is then false. Now this shouldn't be any surprise if you've listened to the last two episodes, you'd know that that, that is Derrida's take on these Socratic dialogues. Now the other text that Derrida draws upon is Malame's Mimic, which in which he meditates on or I should say Malame meditates on Paul Malgarit's uh, P. 
Pierrot, the murderer of his wife and the murder of his wife, or Pierrot, uh, assassin de sa femme, which uh, translates to Pierrot, the his the, the guy, Pierrot, murderer of, murderer of his wife. So he murdered his wife, I guess. Now in this story, which is a, is a play, in this play, a mime, a, a literal mime, murders his wife by tickling her to death. And then his wife's spirit enters him and like tickles him from the inside to death. Now we don't actually see the murder occur. We only see the mime replay the murder. So what we have here is a deferral of presence. The whole play centers on the this murder that doesn't actually occur in the play. In fact, we only see it unfold in a kind of elusive form, in, in a kind of simulated form by the mime who reenacts the events. So here, and it's described almost in these ex exact words in the play, at least in the instructions in the play, uh, that the mime is bringing the past to the present. And that's just what I want to say about these two excerpts before we get into it in more detail. But just, yeah, just so you know, that's what we're uh, presented with here. Now, additionally, at the beginning of this chapter, Derrida includes a number of different excerpts from uh, other of Malame's texts, and I think even some from Plato as well, that uh, are just um, gibberish uh, if you don't have context. If you just read them on their own, they don't make any sense. They are just excerpts from various texts, and he will go through and, and reflect upon each of them. Now, for the sake of clarity, and because he doesn't spend a whole lot of time doing that, I'm just going to exclude that entirely because it would be way too convoluted and confusing to explain. Now, what I do want you to know, though, is that in these excerpts, which I think when he actually wrote this, it was originally in the form of like a lecture. He had them up on a board. So students or, or other people, it may not have been a lecture, it may have been like a group discussion conference type thing. Other people there could see them. And in them, you would have writings in the in the corner. So there are these rectangular excerpts, uh, these rectangular sections. So and writing goes diagonally and up and down and is in uh, stranded parts in like a corner. And this is meant to emphasize the possibilities afforded by the written word that you know might be foreclosed if we just imagine writing as being this linear thing. You know, you write from left to right, top down, and that's it. So this opens up sort of possibilities for language in writing. Now he first considers in more detail that Socratic dialogue with Protarchus, the, uh, the philobus. And he makes four, or he makes an observation that the book contains four facets that we must reconcile, that we must come to terms with. The first one is that it is a dialogue. It is dialectic, and this kind of how all of Plato's Socratic dialogues you know, how they play out, because it's, they're all dialogues. Secondly, the truth of the book is decidable. That is, we can actually discover what the truth of that book is. Third, the value of the book, whether it is true or false, uh, he doesn't use the words good or evil here, but the value of it as being either true or false is not intrinsic to it. And thirdly, the element of the book is the image in general. So we can know whether or not it's true or false, uh, and the value of the book is the image, or sorry, I should say the element of the book is the image in general. So now I'm going to go through each of these one by one. So number one, 
that the book is a dialogue or a dialectic. So this is true of the literal book, right? The Philebus. It, it features a dialogue between Petrarchus and between Socrates. Now Derrida makes this point drawing from Socrates' observation of writing on the soul, that is how the soul can be written on and how he likes that kind of writing. Now when Socrates says this, he's not only saying that the soul can be written on and there's truth that can be embedded there, and this can be a justification for writing in general, he's also saying, or this is the point that Derrida is making, that to be thinking with oneself, to think alone, is in itself a kind of dialectical thinking, because you are coming into contact with these written words on your soul. And I think that many people could relate. When you think, you are often going to uncover things that you are not readily conscious of in any given moment. In fact, a lot of those things are going to have been inputted into you, perhaps by somebody else at a different time, perhaps by your own experiences, maybe not with someone else, maybe with uh, a thing in nature or, or whatever. And so in that moment, in that recollection of a part of you, something that you know, you are engaging in a kind of dialectic. And this demonstrates a kind of splitting of this singular subject idea. That is that you are a total uh, being and you can only actually accrue knowledge by coming into contact with other beings, which is how Derrida also frames his general critique of Hegelianism or the notion that recognition serves as the basis for self-consciousness, which I don't wanna, uh, it's kind of a lot to get into here. Instead, his point is that knowledge or some form of it, some derivative of it can be arrived at in uh, by yourself, in the dialectic you have with yourself. So thinking is like a discourse with the mind. But, you know, in the Platonic tradition, this would be viewed as kind of dead discourse, even though Derrida uh, really problematized that. Okay, second, the second facet that the book, uh, the truth of the book is decidable. If true things have been inscribed on our soul, if, you know, uh, if, according to Socrates, we have true ideas imparted to us, have been written onto our soul, then they can be seen as true. So the book must be, or any written text, can and should be assessed by uh, a kind of a logocentric eye in this Platonic tradition, or this uh, logocentric mind, to see if it stands up to scrutiny. So the book can be um, assessed in terms of its truthness. It is not falseness, just, um, I guess, a priori. You can't just assume this of all books, that it is just false. In fact, they can be assessed for their truth value. So now the third one, the value of the book as being either true or false is not intrinsic to it. So it's not, the book is neither just in itself true or in itself false. So it's not like good or bad. In his words, instead, the book, which copies, reproduces, imitates living discourse, is worth only as much as that discourse is worth. It can be worth less, it can't be worth more. So within uh, the text, within a book, you can find true discourse or true, uh, true words, true ideas that can be unearthed with the proper scrutiny. And fourth and finally, the book as an image in general, which is to say that if Socrates can compare the soul to a book, that is because each is the image or likeness of the other. That is, the soul is 
you know, the soul being a thing that's often associated with pure presence, a thing that's often associated with logos being, you know, willed by the word of God, by, by God. That means then, because they can be interchanged here, that the soul is itself constructed in the likeness of a book. So we can't just outright condemn writing because that would imply then that we have to condemn the writing on the soul. So what we have then, if we accept the platonic imagination here, where you have first uh, pure presence being um, perhaps the word of God or a God, and then on the other end of the spectrum towards falsity, according to Plato, you have uh, painting or you have writing. Now, what Derrida reveals is that this isn't a kind of linear um, process here. In fact, the two ends meet. And what we have instead is a kind of Ouroboros here. As he has shown, Derrida has shown, the beginning has only ever made itself apparent to us as a kind of writing. And likewise, that endpoint writing has only ever made itself apparent to us in a kind of speech. And so through that, we can confer, we can uh, infer, confer, we can infer then, we can um, intimate how this linear image of the process of truth, how it goes from truth to falsity, actually resembles more of a circle and how these two elements or these two extremes fold in onto one another. So this, excuse me, so this leads Derrida to write the following, that the painter then knows how to restore the naked image of the thing, the image as it presents itself to simple intuition, as it shows itself in its intelligible eidos or sensible horaton, or, uh, or I don't know how to pronounce that, in its sensible limitation is the translation. Now it's at this point that he turns to Malamé's mimic, which is reflecting upon uh, Pierrot's, or the Pierrot assassin de sa femme, or sa femme, uh, Pierrot, the murderer of his wife, which the title is just so much better in French because we don't, I don't know what the proper syntactical terms are here, but Pierrot assassin de sa femme is a lot less clunky than Pierrot, the murderer of his wife. But anyways, that's this thing. Translations aren't, you know, something's going to be lost there. Now Derrida uses, uses, Malamé's reflection upon this text or this screenplay of this script to say that when the mime is reenacting his the wife the wife of his murder his wife's murder what he is doing there is not replicating an original act because in the in the context of the play the viewer never actually comes into contact with this so-called original act in fact all we have as a point of reference is that reenactment. And if we look back into the Greek uh, lexicon, and especially how this is taken up by Heidegger a few millennia later, one of the terms that is used to describe truth or the process of arriving at truth is called uh, aletheia. And this is, and Heidegger takes it up this way, it is kind of a way to describe the unfolding of truth where truth is like a flower, and with the right conditions, it will uh, unfold itself, it will bloom into the spectral light of, 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 of sunlight that is its kind of, um, it's it, where it's meant to be. So truth-telling 
is this act of unfolding or unveiling, revealing. Now, when the mime reenacts the murder of his wife, what he is doing is participating in that truth act. Insofar as he is particip insofar as I, I should say, insofar as truth is, in Derrida's words, the present unveiling of the present, Alethea. That is Alethea. Because there is no past for us in this play. It starts out after the fact of his wife's murder, and we only, you know, it's, it doesn't actually start with him miming this out. It starts with him having a conversation with somebody, and they're, they're having a drink, and he's really distraught. But he reenacts this event, and that is the present. That is the only foray, that is the only uh, entryway we have to that event. So Malame reflects upon the significance of this act of imitation, of this mime, of this mimesis. And Derrida commenting on Malame says that Malame is able to reflect upon it without regressing into Platonism. Whereas if Plato, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna make some wild claims about what Plato would think about this thing, but Plato might say, well, we are not being presented with the truth here. We are being presented with a reenactment of what is the truth. And so therefore, we cannot actually trust this uh, retelling, this reenactment, because it isn't the actual thing. We do not have presence. We are not physically there with the actual event. We are only physically there with the dead repetition of it. So Malame's reflection does not fall into the platonic trap that there is, in Derrida's words, a being of something that is, and that is being imitated. That there's a real thing being replicated or a real event. So in this sequence of mimesis, Derrida says that what is lifted then is not difference, but the different, the difference, the decidable exteriority of differing terms. So what we have here is then a, a, a collapse of temporality, a collapse of what we know about past, present, and future, because we're here having the, uh, I guess, the past being reenacted for us of an event that we should already know the outcome of, so the future is already laid out. And so we have this kind of meeting of all the worlds. We have the meeting of the past, the present, and the future here. So when the mime mimes his wife's murder, what we have here, or, well, I should say, he isn't replicating a past that was original, like an original true thing. It is the transportation of the present to the past, of the past to the future. They all collapse into a mutuality, an endless circle of signification. So the mime, despite only reenacting an event, is not shunning presence, is not shunning truth. In fact, the mime is delivering us to truth. The mime is delivering us to presence, making that uh, meeting, uh, making that encounter, that event, meetable, recognizable by us. Now, when Malame uh, talks about this text, he uses he uses the language of, or he uses the term hymen, which in French, there are so many different plays on words being used here that, that I can't possibly convey here, but um, it's a very complicated thing. And Derrida, in, in an obviously problematic way, associating this thing called the hymen with virginity and just really submitting to its existence, is obviously replicating various 
paternalistic understandings about femininity, about uh, women's sexuality, and so on. So we have to always be critical of that. But he talks about the hymen here in its, you know, phantasmagoric, phantasmagoric, it's a word, construction largely by the male gaze. The hymen is what represents virginity, and it is the site of desire to, of course, the universal male subject being the one that um, is the active sexual being in our in our history, of course, uh, taking women outside of possible active engagement with sexuality, of course, being only receptors to sexuality. But in the way that it's constructed in this tradition, in this history, the hymen is associated with virginity. But that is a virginity that is always um, sought after, to end. In fact, the realization of desire, be it on the part of both uh, the woman or the man, comes at the expense of the hymen, which stands in for desire itself. So in realizing the act, the sexual act, the thing that is standing in for desire disappears. So the idea here is that desire disappears in the act of realizing it. And this makes sense on levels that Malame and Derrida did not reflect on, and that is, would it certainly explain why there is an incessant obsession on the part of men to always, for the most part, date younger women? It seems as though there's this drive always to get at this idea of, like, purity, uh, which, like, very much veers into pedophiliac um, desires. And this plays itself out in popular culture all the time, like in... Uh, absolutely god-awful shows like Twin Peaks where men are just like young girls are depicted as being women essentially and are like act as these femme fatales for these men even though they're they're girls they're kids and it's the most absurd thing uh, but anyways it, it communicates a certain truth about our uh, historical treatment of women and girls so when the hymen is <laughs> ruptured it goes away it's so it's so absurd to even talk about this but in that there is the dissipation of desire and so with its fulfillment comes its escape or its uh fleetingness so the hymen embraces two contradictory characters and he associates this derrida associates this with the pharmacon being both embodying both the possibility of a remedy or a poison or a cure and a poison, it toes the line between both truth and non-truth, between presence and non-presence, between uh, singularity or coupling in, the terms, in terms of the hymen, virginity and coupling, and so on. So the mime toes the line between presence and non-presence, between the original and the copy, between past and future, between present and future, between present and past, and so on. So as a liminal figure, who, who acts out this imitation, the mime demands we interrogate what it means to read and what it means to write as well. Is not the mime reading an encounter that is simultaneously written and it's being read as imitation? And what I mean by that is that in order for the mime to reenact the event, that we that is our only foray into the event, the mime had to essentially read the event in his mind's eye, write it out in his reenacting it, that we could then read and then, I guess, confer meaning onto it by virtue of our being present. You can't, re you can't write something without 
a reader, even if that reader is only yourself and you cannot read something without a writer. So when we read the play, when we read this reenactment, we do not resolve the chain of signification and say that, oh, that is the truth. Truth is always what is being deferred in the implication that it is a reenactment. So the book then, just talking generally about books, always retain and repeat the theatrical stage. They always uh, offer us a sight of possible meaning, but then like a carrot on the end of the stick in front of a horse, it's always running after it. We won't actually get there. And it only shows a representation. It shows itself to be a fiction. Now, between different forms of writing are indeed differences. So the book is different from the play, which is different from the mime, etc. Like these are different uh, ways to represent writing, to represent a kind of textuality. Now, what unites them is their mutual cast aside reference, the being aside, the hymen, or being like a, the hymen, towing the line between these two poles, that is, existing both on the outside and the inside. The key point being, of course, that outsidedness. And this might be a good point here for a ad. All right. I hope that wasn't, I don't know what that would have been, but we'll, we'll see what that was. Uh, hopefully it wasn't too jarring. Now, all right. So between these two, these, these different, different, these many different media, like the mime, like the play, like the book, they are different, but they all embody this writing by occupying this kind of outsidedness. So with the study of like literature, for example, uh, there's been an entire enterprise concerned with the topic of themes, you know, in literary criticism or whatever. So to note a theme demands a bracketing off of the words that do not comply to it. Now, we try to make our lives easy in anyone studying English or many other different fields would know that we try to make our lives easy by selecting certain evidence that is going to comply with uh, what we're looking at. And this happens in the sciences as well. There is very much a thing called errant data, and errant data is data that is not uh, properly explained by the scientific method deployed. And the, I'm not saying, I'm not one of those uh, sciences just like it's all like postmodern um, nonsense that nothing is true or anything. What I'm saying, and I think that this is actually how a proper science works, is that it doesn't claim to account for any everything. It sets very strict limits. It, it sets very strict um, parameters, and it applies a very strict method to understand what will happen inside of those parameters. And it comes up with pretty fantastic conclusions, and it becomes a science or it becomes a kind of truth when that can be replicated. Now, so there is not a totalizing science. There is not a totalizing uh, literary criticism either. It has to always apply itself against a very strict and specific uh, frame, very strict uh, playground, I'll just call it. Now, in the case of words, what that will depend on, especially in the case of literary criticism and the searching out of themes or theme thematism, is to bracket off anything that might not comply with that theme. Because, you know, you want to understand um, a film, for example, as a horror film, what you will do is completely ignore, unless it will directly relate to the theme of horror to some extent, themes that belong to other genres. And this is, I'm bridging a little bit into one of Derrida's other texts, but I won't get into that now, maybe another day, um, that you, you bracket off 
the themes of horror, from the themes of maybe romance, from comedy, from anything else within the horror genre, in order to understand it through that lens, which isn't a bad thing. We're not being critical here. It's just describing how these efforts play themselves out. It demands a bracketing off of words or ideas that do not comply with our specific lens. And in that moment, those words that are accepted as standing in for a certain theme or a certain genre or whatever are kind of bestowed the status of a, of a transcendental signified, that is, they stand in for something or point to this transcendental signified that then encapsulates the entirety of the text, where you can say that the text is um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is a horror novel. And then that is what all of the signifiers within the text are meant to point to in some form or other. Sometimes you have to take a detour, but you will arrive there eventually. Now Derrida takes this idea, or this, I guess this criticism, and really explodes it and says, why do we have to only be focused on the words here? What about, or what even gives these words written on a page their possibility? What is, uh, to use a word, to use one of Deleuze and Guattari's words, what is the plane of imminence, the condition that allows words to appear? And the simple answer really is the page. You know, you can't have words written down without a medium for them to be written on, be it a stone or a page, you know, paper, the sand, whatever. Whatever it's written on, it needs some medium to be written on. So this condition for the possibility of writing depends upon its being erased. So when you write something on a page, what you are doing is displacing, like on a white page, you are displacing the whiteness underneath the, the letters you are writing. Or like a chalkboard, you're displacing the, the black chalkboard, the blackness on the, with the white that you're writing. But that never goes away. So the medium here toes the line between being both there and not there. It must disappear in order for the meaning to arrive, at least in how we limit meaning to the easily recognized significations of, uh, or signs like the written, written word. The medium must disappear in order to leave room for meaning, but that meaning is only made possible by the presence of that medium. So what we have here then is both the presence and the non-presence of this physical medium that gives possibility to meaning. So putting this observation forward, Derrida says like, well, we should really be interrogating this thing, uh, looking beyond the words to enter the very medium itself into textuality, to think about what that medium means, to think about what this, this, the state of mediumness is. So in those excerpts I mentioned before that I wouldn't really get into, and I'm still not going to get into it, there are these big gulfs and, and big spaces between words, between stanzas, between, uh, you know, little sentences that in themselves communicate a kind of language. And you might see this if you ever read poetry. Sometimes you'll have, uh, you'll have poetry staggered. I don't know if that's the proper term, but, you know, you'll have a sentence start, and then the next sentence beneath it will start, but it'll start, like, indented a little bit. Then the next one will start, and it'll be indented an extra time, and then you'll get, like, kind of a, uh, a step a staircase effect. And all this is doing is playing with this medium that exists beneath the words. 
this medium that toes the line, like the words themselves, between presence and non-presence. And here we get like a kind of uh, a chiasmus, which is a fancy way of saying a chiasmus is when something turns into something else and then turns back into it. Or I think it could also be understood when two different things meet and, and bounce off from one another as well. And so what we get here between the writing and the medium underneath is a kind of meeting between the two and depending upon one another and then going their separate ways. So for this reason, Derrida can say that because there's so much more to a text than the written words, he says that a text is never truly made up of signs or signifiers. There's so much more to it. And the whole logic of signification has often been, you know, through like Levi-Strauss and uh, Saussure and other, other thinkers, has been so narrowly focused on these literal words or letters as being signs for something else. When Derrida is really trying to interrogate what we even come to recognize as a sign, starting to include here, for example, like we've been doing, the very medium that the sign is on as being a sign of something. So this is how he imagines the distinction between polysemy, polysemy, that, uh, which is when many, uh, a word can mean many different things. And the example I used in the last episode was, or two episodes was uh, the word watch, which watch as it can be a verb, you know, to watch something, or a watch can be a noun, you know, the thing on your wrist um, that you use to watch, uh, to look at the time. Now, polysemy does not actually properly account for this because polysemy, <laughs> polyamory, polygamy, polytheism, Jesus. Have I lost it? Maybe. Uh, polysemy will only be focused on the words themselves, whereas dissemination is expanding the categories of recognition of what can even count as a sign. So now the blank canvas can be seen as a sign, where in his words, dissemination affirms the always already divided generation of meaning. You know, um, in this case, how the medium toes the line between truth and falseness, between presence and non-presence, between meaning and non-meaning. And dissemination welcomes that and really seeks to explore it. And so it's in this way that he compares uh, writing to the throw of a dice. If you throw dice, you are dependent upon not the result of that dice, of those dice, but you are dependent upon the surface that those dice are going to uh, fall on. Because you need a surface or else there's no dice. No, no dice. Isn't that an expression? Anyways, you, th you have to throw dice onto something. And what you are presented with is the, the top face of the die, the die. That's the one you're looking at. But that is dependent upon the bottom face that you do not actually see. So what you are coming into presence with depends upon a non-presence, the non-presence of the side that's facing down. And it's totally left up to chance, of course. But what can't fall to chance is the very logic or the necessity to fracture meaning in non-meaning or to fracture presence by always having non-presence around as well. And this speaks to the, his broader uh, understanding of these of binaries, how one term is always going to be dependent upon the other. You cannot just get rid of one without the other going away as well. Now that puts us here into the final chapter, which I approach pretty short or isn't that short, but I'm just going to discuss it shortly because 
it's a lot of repetition and it uses a lot of literary references that I don't have the time nor space to get into in a lot of detail. But here this puts us into dissemination and he takes this up right where he leaves off to discuss the throwing of a of dice, throwing of a die. So when a die is tossed, we engage with uh, the die in person, the you know, that outward facing side, like how we engage with writing that only reflects one side, you know, we're forgetting the medium underneath it. So to engage with writing is to forget everything that exists underneath it, the non-presence that is necessary for its presence. So now he turns to Malamé's other text called uh, Throw of the Dice or Un Coup de Dé, Un Coup de Dé, uh, Throw of the Dice, that, uh, and how it plays on the idea of spacing and how it plays on the idea of presence. And alongside this, he considers uh, Philippe Solers or Philip Solers, I don't know, if the, I think that he's French, uh, his text titled uh, Nombre, which is Numbers. And in this chapter, Derrida goes through all these all these numbers and really breaks them down one by one, applying his method to them, trying to understand them in in his in the way that he does. And I'm not going to go through each one one by one because it would take forever. Uh, so I'm going to pick out the highlights here. So numbers, the the text uses signs from other languages other than French. So it'll use hieroglyphics from other languages. It'll use ideograms from other languages, and so on. And what this does is it kind of disturbs the reader's belief that they are understanding the text. And it's meant for a French audience, of course. So likewise, the text is written from uh, many different perspectives. And I believe that there are four primary voices in the text, three of which are in the third person, I believe, and one of which is in uh, the first person. So what we have here is a kind of splitting or fragmenting of... Uh, of perspectives. Now, in the French, uh, Solers or Soleil uses the imperfect tense, or in French, the imparfait. Now, the imparfait is um, when you are referring to an event in the past that was ongoing, not something that was a, a, a direct moment. So, for example, in English, an example of the imperfect would be, "I was walking." So, you're you're, you're describing an event from the past that was ongoing, but you say it will probably be followed up with an event. You will say, uh, I was walking when I saw a dog. So the dog, you seeing the dog is that event. Now, um, I guess in French, it would be something like, um, like, je marche quand j'ai vu un chien, or something like that. Uh, I was walking when I saw a dog. Now, in, I probably messed that up. Correct me, anyone out there. Uh, now, Malamé uses this tense, you know, uh, quite often, and he does it to disturb the idea of past and present. So you say that you were walking, uh, saying it in French, it kind of implies um, a progression. It implies a kind of activity, but it is an activity that is deferred into the past. Or it, Im it implies a, a, an immediate action that is occurring in the past. So Derrida describes it as a presentless time, the total account depriving the square of its ground, leaving it suspended in the air. So all we are sure of here is, an, is, a, is a language that is unfolding into its becoming present, but only ever becoming. So we're kind of left in a state of suspension 
if you just use this tense, if you just use the imperfect, because, uh, you know, when it is happening in the past and you imply that it is ongoing, you never have that, uh, you never have that satisfaction of the event concluding. It's always like an unfolding that never resolves. And that is really because we can't see presence without that non-presence always being there. It is always deferred by the thing taken for present, which itself only points to its non-presence, the non-presence that gives it meaning uh, or, you know, occasions it. So we are, in his words, we are unable to see presence as such since presence does not present itself. We are only confronted, these are my words, we are only confronted really with a mirror, like the face of a die. It stands in for the rest of the text, which it obviously cannot do successfully. It only It's only a simulation of it. It's a simulation of the simulation that is underneath it, the presence of the non-presence underneath it, troubling that split between presence and non-presence, really demonstrating that they are both present and they are both non-present, and really um, then calling into question the position of the reader, the viewer in that moment. So both act as almost a supplement for one another. Would pages be made? Would the um, condition of the possibility of writing be made without the promise of writing? Hardly not. They are very much dependent on one another. And so the, so the primacy that would have been under Platonism afforded to the present thing, what you are immediately come into contact with, is now troubled, knowing that it is only a supplement to the realization of the very condition of possibility underneath it. Very much like how Deleuze and Guattari described the body without organs, as giving the body, or, or I should say, as organs, or where organs give that body a kind of shape, which then allow the organs to have a kind of identity, and they then bounce off of one another and give each other meaning. And that more or less covers this entire text. I hope that you were able to get something out of it, and that I was able to clarify things. If there's anything I got wrong, or anything I excluded that you think I should have really mentioned, I'd love to hear about it. Um, yeah, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. If you listen to this in podcast form, you can leave five stars if you're doing it on some platforms. That would help me out a lot. Yeah. Catch you next time. Take care.